Welcome to the Fish Nerds. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd of the Fish Nerds Podcast, where we talk about fish, fishing, and eating fish. And tonight, I have no co-host. It's just me, little old Clay, hanging out with you, and I'm glad to be here. Before we begin, I want to start by thanking all of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, for those who don't know, Patreon is a crowdfunding site. You can go to patreon.com slash fishnerds. And it's how we fund our podcast. We don't have any really uh, official paying sponsors. Our, our, our listeners fund our podcast. So if you like the show, head to patreon.com slash fishnerds. Give us a dollar an episode and help us keep this show going. It's really the only source of funding we have. If you donate at the $2 per episode level, it's $8 a month, I'll send you an effing beanie. If you donate at the $5 level, you'll get a Fish Nerds hat. If you donate at the $25 level, like our friend Josh Lopes did, I will mention your business on the show. So let me do that for Josh Lopes. Uh, Josh is a friend of mine who likes the podcast and is a complete nerd, and he owns LopesTax.com. If you're in Massachusetts and need an accountant, go to LopesTax.com. See? Easy. 25 bucks. What a bargain. So anyway, thanks to all of our subscribers uh, on Patreon. If you're a new subscriber, you will be getting a package very, very soon from me. I'm just waiting for some hats to come in. And I thank you all so much for supporting the show. Now, let's get on with this episode. Tonight on the show, or today, depending on what time you're listening, we have Jeff Danielson, our effing librarian. He is back with a vengeance. He's going to tell you all about uh, his quest to catch the elusive wild koi fish. Very exciting. Uh, also, Fish Guy Josh is with us with a brand new segment called Fish Guy Talks to Fish Guys. Can't wait to hear what Fish Guy Josh is up to. I also recently had lunch with Virginia Eats and Drinks Magazine and radio producer Patrick, my friend Patrick from Virginia Beach. And I had lunch with him and did a little interview. I also went fishing. Believe it or not, I went fishing and I found out when I bring my recording equipment fishing, it's always interesting. So I recorded a live fishing trip with our fly fishing correspondent, Rich Collins. So a lot going on tonight. Uh, and of course, uh, we also have local fishing reports. I put out a call to, for people to call in their local fishing reports. And fans, listeners did not let me down this week. We got a ton of calls. So our show will end with a whole bunch of fishing reports from around the country and around the world. Really, really cool stuff. But before we begin, this episode is brought to you by our friends from the Beyond Data podcast. Uh, this actually is from science writer Rhett Talbot, who's actually a friend of mine. His brand new show, and he's going to give you a little sneak peek. If you like what you hear, and you definitely will, be sure to head over to Apple Podcast or uh, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and hit the subscribe button. I think within a week's time, the first episode will drop. Rhett is far nerdier than any of the fish nerds. Or, well, not any of us, but he's way nerdy. Uh, and you're going to love this show. Uh, it's going to fill up your ear holes with lots of nerdy stuff. It's beyonddatapodcast.com for more information. Or, of course, Apple Podcast or Google Play, or iHeartRadio, or wherever. Here is a sample of Beyond Data. As far as my experience with the toadfish, or what we called in our area hackleheads, uh, I've caught many. We used to call them hackleheads. And no one, no one who grew up on Long Island would ever eat one of these things. In the 1980s in New York, the oyster toadfish was the definition of an abundant and underutilized species a so-called trash fish. In fact, the species was so plentiful that commercial baymen considered it at best a nuisance. They would save all the uh, toadfish and put them in the big, you know, uh, fish, uh, fish barrels or totes and uh, just leave the whole thing out of the water till they died because they were also trying to uh, help with the clam population because those toadfish ate clams, ate everything pretty much. Then in the early 1990s, some baymen's perception of the oyster toadfish changed almost overnight. Uh, and he was selling some eels to some uh, Asian uh, outfits, and they asked him about, hey, do you ever catch oyster toadfish? 
And that was the beginning of a fishery for which there was no regulation and precious few data. The demand exploded with at least a 300% increase in reported landings in just a year between 1992 and 1993. And they were really in demand. I mean, there were times when I would get calls from four or five different uh, buyers saying, can I have your fish this week? Can I have your fish? And then, almost as suddenly as it had started, it was over. Um, so this was really like an unexploited fishery because no one really ate them. This market developed. And in about two or three years, um, that, that they kind of burned through this resource. I'm Rhett Talbot, inviting you to join me and my guests when we discuss the oyster toadfish fishery in the inaugural episode of the Beyond Data podcast, coming later this month. The data may be few, but the two decades old cautionary tale of New York's oyster toadfish fishery is perhaps more relevant now than ever. Subscribe now. Okay, great. That was fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to hear the show and see what Rhett does with it. Uh, if, if you're not following along with Rhett Talbot already, he also is um, one of the partners of of uh, the Angler's Pint Glass. If you're a, a beer drinker and you want really great beer cups, Angler's Pint from Karen Talbot are remarkable uh, beer glasses. Just Google it up. I think you can buy them through Orvis now, which is really kind of super cool. And they were on the Fish Nerds before they were on Orvis. I'm just putting that out there. Everyone is successful after the Fish Nerds. Okay, how about some fish in the news? News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. This is where you say, I love fish in the news, because I'm all alone, and it's so weird talking to just me tonight. Okay, this is from BuzzFeed, which I know isn't real news, but I can't help myself because it's been so popular lately in all of our news feeds. People are freaking out about this woman who threw a shark out of a pool. That's right, another shark in the pool story. I think there's been like three shark in the pool stories in the last three weeks in the news. It seems to be a new trend. Uh, if you are part of the shark in the pool trend, please stop that now. Uh, no one, No one wants a shark in the pool. All right, so here it is. People are freaking out about this woman who threw a shark out of a pool. A Sydney real estate agent has made headlines after she picked a shark up out of a rock pool and threw it back into the ocean at Oak Park and Cronulla's. That's in Australia. Good day. We'll hear from Australia later tonight. Melissa Hathier, who told ABC she surfs regularly, works at Coronola Real Estate Agency, is now the company's in-house shark wrangler due to her newfound fame. This is a quote. I said, you know, I'm going to go in and check him out, she told the Today Show. You're welcome for that accent. Uh, the footage of Heather swimming above the child-sized Port Jackson shark before picking it up and freeing it was uploaded on Tuesday. So far, 60,000 views and hundreds of shares. People are understandably impressed. Here's a little bit of a Twitter action from it. Ha ha, yes, Mel, you freaking mad dog. That was legendary. That's from John. Allison says... All in a day's work for a local real estate agent. Good day. And Ralph says, good one, Melissa. So this is very exciting stuff. While the reporter has not contacted a shark expert directly, picking up sharks up out of the water is probably not advised and is probably a good idea not to try and replicate uh, Heather's rescue mission. So um, here's the advice from BuzzFeed. Don't pick up sharks and <laughs> and release them. Um, and really, just want to follow up one more time. If you are in the habit of keeping sharks in pools, stop it. Okay, that that's that's it for that um, ridiculousness. But that's fish in the news, right? Uh, it's funny how this year that's been the predominant story. Last year it was the Nutcracker, right? It was the Paku who eats nuts now at sharks and pools. Uh, I would love to hear what you think could happen for the big fish news in 2018. God only knows, maybe it's instance of people kissing fish. Maybe that'll be a huge problem in 2018. One never knows. But here's our next story. Speaking of fish kisses, this is from theguardian.com UK, okay? Paramedics save man after he swallows whole live Dover soul. 
fish wriggling free after being caught and jumped down a man's throat, blocking airway, causing his cardiac arrest. This is good. This is really cool. Uh, not really cool. It's really sad. A prank almost proved fatal when a 28-year-old man got a whole live Dover sole stuck in his throat. That's right. You heard that. A whole live Dover sole stuck in his throat. The man had just caught the 14-centimeter fish and had put it over his mouth as a joke, but it wriggled free and jumped down his windpipe, causing a complete blockage. Paramedics were called, and when they arrived, the Bascom Pier in Dorset on the night of the October 5th, they found the man, who has not been identified, had collapsed and stopped breathing. Friends were performing CPR, as directed by an emergency medical dispatcher on the line from 999, which is England's 911 control room. Initial assessments by paramedic Matt Harrison was that the patient had a blocked airway and was in cardiac arrest. Now, it got me thinking about, like, how many fish have I kissed and not died from yet this one guy couldn't do that couldn't kiss a fish and not die now i have heard of this before with uh fish like in the perch family uh college kids like trying to swallow a perch or put a perch in their mouth and they saw it halfway down and the, the perculum flaps and all the all the spines and stuff make it really hard to dislodge and people do die from this it's not a rare well it's a rare occurrence but it's not unheard of from this Anyway, the boys were giving really good CPR on our arrival as instructed by the control room uh, staff, Box said. That's one of the initial responders. Initially, we didn't know the true extent of the situation or what the patient was choking on. But as we questioned them further, we were told he had a whole fish stuck in his windpipe. A whole fish! Despite the paramedics artificially ventilating him with a bag and mask, his chest remained silent, suggesting there was a total airway occlusion and he was not receiving any oxygen because there was a fish in his throat <laughs> harrison said uh reassessment of the patient inside the ambulance indicated further deterioration of his condition and a decline of cardiac output he was dying it was clear that we needed to get the fish out or the patient was not going to survive the short journey to the royal born mouth hospital so what they did is they took some large forceps and they dislodged the tip of the tail. And then very carefully, so not to break tail off, they tried to remove it. The, the paramedics said they have, they have one attempt to get this right. This is actually the quote. I was acutely aware that I had only one attempt to get this right, as if I lost grip or a piece broke off and it slid further out of sight, then there was nothing more that we could have done to retrieve the obstruction. Eventually, after six attempts, the fish came out. Remember, he just said I had one attempt. Now he says six attempts. Uh, the fish came out in one piece, and to our amazement, it was a whole Dover sole, measuring approximately 14 centimeters in length. Harrison added, I have never attended a more bizarre incident and don't think I ever will, but we're all so glad the patient has no lasting effects from his cardiac arrest, uh, which could so easily have had such a tragic and devastating outcome. Okay, so do we need to tell people to stop kissing fish? Is that the next big move? Or can we trust people not to drop fish down their throats? I, I don't know the answer. You guys let me know what you think. But I guess fish are pretty dangerous. Uh, so so be careful out there, all you nerds who like to kiss baby fishes. You never know what can happen. Um, but again, like I said, I've heard of this happening before. Not good, but uh, also a little bit funny. And I, I hope that the, uh, the fish survived, but they did not tell us the outcome of the Dover soul. So... Uh, there, there it is. And if he did die, I hope that they were able to save his soul. I apologize in advance. All right. Up next. <laughs> that, that was news, by the way. Up next, we have Jeff, our effing librarian, with a koi story. Hey, this is Jeff, your effing librarian here in the Kansas City area. Uh, I was just going to report back on one of the silly things that fish nerds do, which is fishing quests. And I recently got married and moved um, to from one side of the Kansas City Metropolitan to the other. Um, and it turns out that just down the just down the street from my new residence is a city park with a fairly decent sized pond slash lake. And in that lake are some koi. And somebody, I'm sure, took their pet koi, didn't want them anymore, threw them in the pond. And koi being carp, just domesticated carp, they grew. And they grew to rather impressive sizes. Um, and so I had been fishing this lake all summer 
and I'd been fishing it before that. And I'd, I'd seen the koi, and I thought, well, I'm going to catch these koi. That, that, that's going to be fun. That's, that's a big fish. I can see them. They're brightly colored. I can see them. So I'm going to catch them. So originally, I started out trying to catch them on a fly. Um, and as you all know, I like to fish ten carl a lot. Um, and I had bought some Japanese carp fishing poles, which work much like tenkara where you just tie the line to the end of the rod. Um, there's no reel. You just play the play the fish with the actual bend of the rod. And I they, they can also cast a fly. And so I tried casting flies to the, to the carp. And I've caught carp on a fly rod before. And so I thought, oh, eh, this won't be too hard. I mean, carp are, are, are a little persnickety for fly fishing I can usually get one to bite. Um, these koi were having none of it. Uh, they, I tried all kinds of flies. They didn't like them. I could tell that they weren't being spooked or um, anything like that because they'll bolt away real quick if they see your line or you. it's too splashy or something like that. So the presentation was good. They just weren't interested in the flies. And I tried a wide variety and it just didn't work. So then I thought, well, I'll use these rods the way the Japanese actually use them, which is I'll use bait. So I first tried corn, which is a standard technique for catching carp. But this pond has a very sizable bluegill population. It's all very, it's not very deep. And so you can't kind of, you can't fish deep enough to avoid the bluegill. And so they were pests. They kept eating the corn or knocking it off your hook. And uh, so that method didn't work. So then I tried another standard, which is strawberry-flavored dough bait, which you make out of strawberry jello, cornmeal, and flour and water. I even, I even boiled them, made little dough balls and boiled them to make boilies. Uh, went back out to the lake a couple times with my son, and uh, he was using another one of these rods, and lo and behold, turns out the catfish really like this. And so at first I couldn't catch the carp because, or catch the koi because I couldn't keep the bluegill off the bait. Now the problem was I couldn't keep the catfish off the bait. And which wouldn't really, you know, be that bad. I mean, I'm catching lots of catfish and some of them big, but I'm not going to eat anything out of this lake. This lake, the water quality is pretty terrible. Um, due to waterfowl and suburban runoff, so wouldn't eat anything out of there. Uh, but had some fun catching some catfish. Um, so then I hit up some people that I knew on the internet about carp fishing, and they told me that in order to... They said that if you're fishing and there's carp and catfish... Catfish are going to eat the exact same things that carp are going to eat. And so you have to fish somewhere where there's only going to be carp and not catfish. And so the strategy is, is to fish in pretty shallow water. You know, because carp will come right up, right up into real shallow water to feed. In fact, they like to feed there. And so went back out and I actually bought some real carp bait i bought some ground bait which is essentially chum you just kind of mix it up with some water until it makes a real thick paste and i bought some commercial boilies which are much harder than my kind of homemade boilies and that's good because they're so hard that the small fish like bluegills and stuff like that can't bust them apart like they will do a standard dough ball and then just eat the little pieces um and so I was fishing with that, and I had cast down along the bank. So I was, only, I was fishing in maybe two to three feet of water. Um, and I was still having the bluegill problem that they were attracted to the ground bait. And every once in a while, they'd, they'd foul hook themselves on the, on the rig for the boilie, which is what's called a hair rig, which is... Um, basically uh, you have your hook tied on, but you also have some of the leader that goes out to the back and you put the boilie behind the hook 
And that way, when the fish sucks it up, when you go to set the hook, it'll hook them right in the lower lip. So you don't have as much of a problem with fish swallowing bait as you or, or getting deep hooked. Let's put it that way. They, they swallow the bait, but they end up getting hooked in the in the lower lip almost every single time. That did happen with catfish. I was using the same sort of rig with the catfish. Um, but I was sitting there, and all of a sudden I noticed that directly in front of me, where I'm sitting along the bank, are two, two koi right there. And I thought, oh, great. I'm going to spook them by moving. So I tried to move them down the bank a little bit by throwing chum along the bank, but they were just kind of sticking around right in front of me. So I very slowly got up and walked away to avoid spooking them and uh, went and pulled up my bait from where it was and kind of had to re-rig because I had a pretty heavy weight on to cast and uh, it and to keep it on the bottom. And I had a really short hook length, so I had to take the weight out of the system and add some more leader. Anyway, then I just took the boilie and the hook and just made a big glob about the size of a tennis ball of this ground bait. It's just a paste of, of chummy type stuff. It's strawberry flavored. And I very gently lowered it into the water about five feet away from where the koi were feeding. And then I walked down the bank so that, A, I could get my line tightened up because this is a fixed line rod, no reel to tighten up the line. And also to kind of get out of their field of view. And so they fed for a little while longer and two more came in. Um, but I didn't get any bites. And so I very gently lifted it up out of the water, made another glob of uh, ground bait wrapped around the hook, lowered it back down in the same spot. And then all of a sudden they discovered it. They discovered the ground bait and they went crazy. There was all four of them kind of swishing around and stuff and, you know, tail up, head down in the vicinity of my hook and they were hitting my leader and so I couldn't tell whether I was getting a bite or whether it was the fish hitting the leader and so this went on for a little bit and eventually I just decided there's got to be one of them has sucked up that bait and doesn't realize it's got a hook in it and so I lifted the rod up until I could feel some weight and sure enough there was a fish on so I set the hook and off it went and then had to recruit one of the local kids that are always down there fishing at the lake to help me net it. Um, fishing with a fixed line rod is a blast. Um, uh, and these rods are designed, they don't look sturdy enough to be catching a fish the size that you're catching here, but they do because they're designed to bend in a very specific way that it gets progressively stiffer as it goes down the rod. So this was a, a pretty good sized fish, you know, put a big, put a big bend in the rod, but there was no point that I felt like that this wasn't in control. Um, but it's a little tricky landing them. And so had this kid help me. Luckily his dad was there. He had a scale. And so we were able to weigh it, weigh it, came in at, at 12.5 pounds. So it's a, it was a big fat football of a koi and it was a beautiful fish it was a beautiful orange and black koi uh got the grip and grin and then put it right back in the water and let it go um i know there are bigger ones in there there's a black and white one that's probably twice the size of this one that i've now got my eye on but um, i have succeeded in a thing that i set out about four months ago to do which was to catch a koi out of this pond a typical fish nerd kind of obsession and i did it uh and i post the pictures in the uh, fish nerds facebook group and uh so yeah i spent four months and a fair amount of money trying to catch somebody's unwanted pet only to let it go 
That's the definition of a fish nerd. So this is Jeff Deffen, librarian, out. Holy smokes, Jeff. Thank you for sharing uh, that story with us. Uh, if you really want to impress the fish nerds, next time, eat the koi. I know it's not good water quality where you got it, but you know what? One bite, what's it going to hurt? Next up, Fish Guy Josh with a brand new segment, Fish Guy Meets Fish Guys. Fish Guy Meets Fish Guys. Fish Guy. Fish Guy. Fish Guy Meets Fish Guys. Fish Guy. Fish Guy Josh. That's right, fellow fish nerds. Fish Guy Josh is back with a brand new segment called Fish Guy Meets Fish Guys, where I bring you the interviews with some of the fishiest people I meet in my day-to-day life of being a marine and fisheries biologist, aquarist, angler, and all-around fish nerd. Now, this first installment is one I've been sitting on for a while. Um, it was from a trip Mrs. Fish Guy and I took to Belize to go dive with whale sharks. Let me start off by saying this trip was absolutely amazing. We saw so many awesome things. Uh, nurse shark feeding frenzies, eagle rays, giant sea turtles, reef squid, uh, hammerheads hunting in the sand, and a great open water flyby from this large silky shark we saw. The trip came to an amazing climax on the last day when we finally got to swim with whale sharks. It was such an epic experience to be in the water with such huge, impressive creatures. Definitely top three underwater experiences. If you'd like to check out some of my underwater footage from the chip, check out Fish Guy Josh on YouTube. And while you're there, click subscribe and help me grow the channel. Now, after we wrapped up diving, I popped into Seahorse Dive Shop in Placencia, Belize to talk with Brian Young Jr. Brian is the son of Brian Sr., a pioneering whale shark diver and owner of the shop. Brian Jr. took a moment from his busy schedule managing the dive shop to talk with me a little bit about whale shark behavior and what whale shark diving entails. Stay tuned for part two of this interview where we'll delve into the many regulations associated with the whale shark diving industry and the conservation of these awesome fish. Have a listen. What's the best time of year to see the whale sharks? It's um, normally March, April, May, and June. Um, around the full moon, actually it begins around the full moon and then it goes up until 10 days after. Sightings can either begin um, a day or two before the full moon up until 10 days after. Where do the seahorse dive boats go to see the whale sharks? Uh, we go out to Gladden Split, which is uh, the farthest point on the barrier reef. Um, that's where the snapper uh, aggregate to spawn. And that's where we normally find the whale sharks because they're there to eat the spawn of the snappers. And so the snapper follow the moon cycle and that the moon, Yeah, the, the follow spawn, uh, the snappers spawn on the moon cycle. And that's, um, that's how we know where the whale sharks are going to be pretty much. Okay. Now I notice on our dive, before going to the spit, we chased, tried to chase tuna schools. Yeah, sometimes we find them as tunas as well because so, they're, they're there eating the small bait fish that the tuners are eating as well. Okay. so. They're not doing, there's no tuna spawn, they're following the same prey that the, the tuna tunas pretty much, yeah, but then the tunas normally don't stay one spot, so they're hard to find as well, yeah. they're up and, up and on the coast, so you don't normally see them along with the, the tunas because you can't find the tunas as much. Yeah, now I noticed everyone on the boat got real excited when the birds started diving, which meant... Yeah, it meant the tunas were there feeding. Okay, and then so when we saw the fish flashing on the top of the water... It's usually when the whale shark, whale shark is following them. Yeah, whale shark is following them, yeah. Okay, so when the birds are diving, that means the fish are high up enough that the divers will probably see the whale, whale shark. sharks. Yeah. Okay, I so, gotcha. That's all. Um, sometimes when the captains are out there, they normally keep an eye out that way too as well. Because um, sometimes the tunas will pass right by that area there. Because for the last few days, the tunas weren't there. So. Okay. And when it's not whale shark season, what do you guys do here at Seahorse? Say again, when it's not? When, when, yeah, when the whale sharks are um, it's, it's pretty slow, basically. Um, it's not as busy as now, um, but we do our local reef dives. Reef dives? Um, yeah, pretty much. Reef okay. dives, um, go to Glovis Reef, Google. All right. It's, it's a lot calmer than it, a lot it is yeah. right now, yeah. Okay. Maybe one boat a day, two boats a day. Yeah. 
And what's the uh, uh, whale shark season is officially when? Um, March until June. March until June. Yeah. Okay. And do you know, do you have any crazy whale shark stories you heard of those guys out there? Like, we saw a bunch or... Personally, no, you'd have to ask the guy. Yeah? Yeah. What's the the biggest one you've ever heard them see? Uh, over 45 feet. And what about the... Bigger than the boat. What about the most most whale sharks at one time? Um, I've heard rumors of my dad speaking uh, way back in the day, in the early early days before it got really popular when there was not as many dive shops around, when we, when we were the only ones only going ones. out. I think he saw about 12 or 13 on one dive and he was videotaping it and when he panned, there was like 12 inch duels, whale sharks everywhere. Wow, that's cool. So you guys were the original shop here? The original shop here that started doing the whale sharks. Wow, you started the, started the whole thing. Yeah, huh? started the whole thing, yeah, and then it got... Are you guys the ones that developed the that diving technique where they yeah. make the bubbles in the yeah. water to try and see Yeah, pretty much. That's why we did it um, in the early days and I used to bring them up every single time once they're there, yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, they think the bubbles are spawned and then you know when they come up. Which I get, yeah. that's what I saw underwater when I saw like Diver uh, Dan yeah. flipping his regulator. Yeah, because like, yeah. when the snappers spawn, it looks like that. They, they swim off and then there's um, one female would swim off and then all the male will follow it. So that's why he did that motion was. Okay, so that creates the bubble trail. Yeah. So what the divers are imitating was yeah. the males following the female Females, snapper. yeah. Pretty much. Okay, yeah, I noticed when we, we saw the school at Jack, they decided to try it yeah. just in case, even just though case, it wasn't yeah. the snapper. Uh-huh. Hmm. So the first one's here, huh? Yeah. When did he start the shop? Um, I don't know for sure. Um, anywhere from 92 to 96, somewhere around there. Okay. And was that, how old are you? How old yeah. am I? Like, I mean, you weren't, I mean, I you obviously weren't was, born yet, right? I mean, no, you yes, weren't I was. born yet, right? Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, I was probably I mean. 10 or 12 years old, I think. Okay. I'm 33 now, so. Okay. Yeah, you know, you're about the same age. <laughs> um, so do you, I notice you're in the office a lot. Do you scuba dive? Or no, like I scuba do scuba dive? dive, yes, but I don't get to do it much because I got Because you're working here? Exactly. <laughs> What's your favorite spot besides... Go and see Welsh Um Saltwater Key and Glover's Reef would be okay. Would be the two two favorite spots. So right Keys on. as well is very nice. Yeah. Yeah, we we went there. We went fishing. Uh, we took a day fishing with Ocean Motion. Okay. With yeah. uh, Sunny, the, the yeah, Sunny younger, the young kid. yeah. And uh, he took us to Turtle Hole and yeah. the Turtle Turtle Ray Alley. Yeah, there's a lot of turtles and stuff. Yeah, areas. he had the the nurse sharks were all stirred up and the stingrays and yeah, it was cool. Fish guy, fish guy, Josh. All right, thank you, Fish Guy Josh. And if you want to follow along with all the adventures of all the correspondence here with the Fish Nerds, you should be at the Fish Nerds podcast group on Facebook. That's where the action is right now. All these guys you're hearing tonight are on that in that group, so it's a lot of fun. Next week, we'll hear part two of Fish Guy Josh's segment, and I uh, can't wait to hear the rest of it. Thank you, Fish Guy Josh. All right, so New Hampshire is where I live, and Rich Collins lives here as well. Rich Collins is our fly fishing correspondent. And we have what's called remote trout ponds. We have all these little ponds around the state that are stocked with helicopters or like people have to hike in with fish to put them in there. And Rich asked me to come fishing with him at a remote trout pond, and I brought our recording equipment, and here is what we found. Okay, ClayGrowsFishNerds.com, hanging out at Mountain Pond in Chatham, New Hampshire. This is a super secret trout pond. Rich Collins is our fly fishing correspondent. He's been promising to take me fly fishing for months and months, and this is our first trip out. Rich, good morning. Good morning. It's time for a challenge. Uh, here we are at one of my favorite secret ponds. It's pretty much marked on every map, but... Uh, you know, it's a haul in here, so a lot of people don't come, and it is full of elusive brookies, or so they say. Yeah, and this is a, a remote trout pond in New Hampshire, and there's a bunch of them, and this one they stock using helicopters. So the brookies here are up for an adventure. Hopefully, in our couple hours of free time here, we can get on them too. What's our technique going to be today? 
Our technique is going to be fish deep because I don't see any insects going on. Uh, it's late, I think, and I'm kind of confused as a, you know, remotely stocked pond. Do the brookies breed in the fall? They are supposed to. Are they frankenfish or are they real fish? Are they acclimated? So I suspect they're uh, kind of horned up for the fall season, but uh, that doesn't mean anything because I fish this pond quite a few times and sometimes there's fish and a lot of times there's uh, nothing. You never know. So it's a, it's a real, it's almost like a backwoods main pond. You know, it's, it's like very uh, contingent upon the environment, whether or not there's going to be fish. So we will see. We'll see. And uh, I did not bring worms as a backup, but I did bring a spinning rod with some uh, panther martins as a backup. So we will, we'll do it. It's a little bit breezy out there and that might wreck it. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. The wind might ruin, uh, ruin the fly fishing, but we have backups and, uh, although I'm a fly snob, I'm not going to sit there and beat the water with a fly when, when, you know, you're going to get nothing. It's just not worth it on a pond. So I have a spinning rod. I'll admit it. Um, and we'll see what happens. So you're not that level of snob. You're on the level of snob where most time you're fly fishing, but you'll do what works when it comes down to it. Right. And people give me uh, give me slack for it, like I'm breaking a uh, breaking a law or a rule, and it's like, dude, it's fishing. It's not <laughs> like as a purist and as enjoyment and as you know what I like to do. The fly is great because there's a lot of elements that come together. But when it doesn't work, and on ponds, a lot of times it doesn't work. Um, you know, especially somewhat artificial, somewhat wild ponds. Well, this is a man-made pond. Is it man-made? There is a there is a dam over here somewhere. That's your clue. Yeah, all, <laughs> nothing's natural up here in the whites anymore. Everything's been so mowed over and cleaned up and groomed. But um, it's as natural as we can kind of get. Um, there's a few other remote ponds that are more remote and potentially more natural. But nah, it's all. And are they worth the effort? I mean, there's so many places to catch brook trout around here. How hard do you want to work for a brook trout? But we're going to get out there and do it. So stay tuned. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Rich and I are still floating around on a canoe here on this remote trout pond. Uh, it's very windy, so immediately we switched from flies to spinners, and I stepped on my fishing rod that I've had since I was 12 years old, and I stepped on it. So I am uh, fishing with a fly rod, but I am jigging a trout magnet on my fly rod. Rich, what have you switched to? Uh, it's a UV rubber minnow because I believe there's a lot of shad or shiner in this pond and we marked, um, I have a fish finder here, we marked two huge fish. They actually splashed out of the water behind us to taunt us and then we caught nothing. So it, it's even worse now because now I know there's fish here. So hopes are high and uh, it looks like using a bass jig <laughs> to me, but if you catch a fish I'm convinced. Um, but it definitely, that's something I would use for bass or pike or pickerel. Uh, but, you know, trout eat things trout, too. Yeah, trout will eat it. So we'll keep going and see how it goes. But it's super windy and uh, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> if you caught a fish right now, I'd be so happy. So this is what, this is what makes a fisherman a real fisherman. You, I don't know this pond that well. And to come out and just be able to nail fish every time, you can't do that. We have to learn this pond, and it takes a while to get in here, and it's like, what do you do next? What's the plan? Figuring it out is tough. And it's really sad. These remote ponds close on October 15th and open again on April, like, third weekend in April. So we really don't have a lot of time left to figure this pond out, because I would love to ice fish it and uh, really do well on it, but can't. So, unless I sneak, which I'm not going to do. Okay, we're still here on the lake. We just canoed back in the wind across this pond. And Rich, how do we do? Well, we're looking at some fish here right now below us. They're about half inch long and they're taunting us in their minnows. So we did uh, poorly. We did really terribly. It was, in, in our defense, we're, we're not good at this and it was windy out. Um, but we do see in the water here lots of baby fish. Rich thinks minnows. I think maybe there's something else. But we'll see. Uh, but yeah, the total fail. Uh, as you can probably hear, it's windy out and wind on a pond fly fishing doesn't work so well for us. Not this time, in autumn. So, uh, you know, you're welcome for no story at all. <laughs> Any closing thoughts, Rich? We can edit this, right? Let's make a story. <laughs> Whoa, I got one! <laughs> It's always an adventure when you come out in the woods. Um, we happened upon no bear, moose, loons, fish, people, or anything. Um, but we, there's a water bug. Wow. So there's water divers in here. Yeah. 
and there's minnows. Um, but we did the adventure, and you didn't, so. Yeah. We know we showed up, and that's that's fishing. So that's it. We will report back if anything changes, but don't hold your breath. <laughs> yeah, I know that was disappointing. I I often find Rich Collins disappointing, but I like him anyway. If you want to see what he's up to besides fishing, you could check out his website at Thirst Productions and uh, see see the rest of his wares. Thirstproductions.com to follow Rich Collins, and of course. Facebook is a really good place to keep up. As regular listeners know, uh, last spring I went to Virginia Beach to the Virginia Aquarium and Marine Science Center. I was the guest speaker all week for their Sensible Seafood Festival, of, all about sustainable seafood. I was uh, I got to speak in front of large groups of people and eat lots of seafood and learn a whole bunch of stuff. And I also met a guy named Patrick who just started a brand new magazine called Virginia Eats and Drinks. And uh, he happened to be in New Hampshire last week and he invited me out for lunch. So I joined him and his friend Doug for a fancy pants lunch in New Hampshire and grabbed a little bit of an interview with him while I was there. Here is Patrick from Virginia Eats and Drinks magazine. Okay, welcome to the Fish Nerds. This is Clay Groves. Uh, we are hanging out in beautiful Glen, New Hampshire at the, uh, what restaurant are we at? We are at the Sunrise Shack. The Sunrise Shack, which is the one of the, one of the like newest breakfast places around. We're actually buying time, waiting for lunch. That voice you just heard is Patrick Evans Hilton. He is the editor, owner, chief nerd of Virginia Eats and Drinks magazine. Welcome to the show. Hey, Clay, so good to see you again. And I say again because, of course, we met back in May down in my neck of the woods. Yeah, we, we met at the Virginia Aquarium and Marine Science Center where, where I got my first big speaking gig. I got to go down there and uh, talk all week about sensible seafood, sustainable seafood and stuff. And we met there. We were, we were both standing in front of our big signs. And turns out we had a New Hampshire connection. You have a place in Ashland, New Hampshire. So we're going to get into your magazine real quick here. You own Virginia Eats and Drinks magazine. Do I dare ask what it's about? <laughs> it's about um, eats and drinks in Virginia. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a perfectly named magazine. And so what, what, what inspired you to start this magazine? You know, our state really is remarkable. Um, there are so many great things to eat and drink across the entire country and around the world, uh, and certainly New Hampshire is no different. Uh, but in our area, we have a birthright to saying that we're first in food in what would become English-speaking America uh, with, um, you know, with the first settlers landing in 1607. And so what really happened there, uh, the British knew how they wanted to eat. The Native Americans were already eating the way they wanted to. Uh, those two cuisines merged over time, uh, actually pretty quickly. And then we we started. Um, we just started chowing down, and so I want to celebrate all those wonderful things, historic, current, uh, everything you can think of. The, the fun thing, and I, this is this is one thing. I, the reason I talk about fish is is culturally, uh, fish, for example, crosses every culture, right? And magically, <laughs> not magically, biologically, food also crosses every culture, right? So it allows you that freedom to to do all this creating uh, of emerging of food ideas. What's the um, because we're a fishing show, what what's the seafood scene like in Virginia? Now you're not just Virginia Beach; you're statewide, right? Yes, uh, statewide. So of course, you know. Um uh, most of the seafood, you know, comes from either the Chesapeake Bay or the Atlantic Ocean, but we do also have the Shenandoah Valley and the, the Blue Ridge and the Allegheny Mountains where there's, there's you know, a lot of uh, trout and everything to enjoy, too. Um, but, you know, our seafood industry is, is thriving. We are the first seafood industry um, in the United States, and, um, you know, it's very large uh, from, you know, wonderful oysters. We have eight different oyster-growing regions to the blue crab, uh, and I want to give a shout out to Maryland. We invented the crab cake. Sorry, guys. Uh, you know, to incredible. That's not a shout out. That's okay. that's a that's a dig. You know, semantics. <laughs> and um, love you, love you, Baltimore. Mean it. And um, you know, uh, also uh, you know, rockfish, which is known in other parts, uh, striped bass. Uh, in Massachusetts, it's striper. 
Stripa. Okay, I like that. That almost sounds dirty when you say it like that. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, Flounder, uh, the Wachaprig on the Eastern Shore is the Flounder capital of the world, or so they say, and I got the bumper sticker to prove it. Uh, so it's, it's, a great, it's a great place to love seafood and to have taste buds. Yeah, and, and it's really great. And I've, like I said, I've, I've tasted pretty much every piece of seafood in Virginia Beach now, having, having judged the uh, seafood festival, and I was totally impressed with it. Uh, and, and visiting your local Whole Foods down there, the local fish are unbelievable, way different than what we have up here, which I always love. And that's one thing, I love traveling and seeing what the, what the different seafoods are like. Now, uh, you actually do a great job speaking. Tell us why, one of the reasons that you're speaking so well. Tell us about your other projects. Well, I'll put, <clears throat> I'll put on my radio voice here is because every Friday evening from 6 until 7, you can listen to the Virginia Eats and Drink Show live on AM 790 WNIS. Which they can also stream. And we'll put links up at fishnerds.com of everything we're talking about today. So, Patrick, let's get a little personal. What's your... Um Starting a magazine is, is a challenge. I have a friend just started one, and he starts. He's he's it's losing money initially. You know, sell ads. It's, it's free magazine, so he's selling ads to, to fund it. How, why are you feeling like you're brave enough to enter the world of magazine editing when that industry seems to be on on the downside? Magazines, on the whole, and I think a lot of publications are on the downside, but. Uh, specialty publications and niche publications are not. People need to know what interests them. And my magazine, um, covering covering great things to eat uh, and great things to drink and all the people that make it happen, whether it's chefs, bartenders, farmers, fishermen, you know, you name it, um, I feel like it covers a very interesting niche. Um, and also, you know, although I am a, a, a trained chef uh, and then um, have other credentials in the culinary realm, one of the biggest credentials that I have is I have spent 22 years in publishing. Um, I, I know what it takes to, to lay out a magazine, to create content, um, and then I try to get as many other talented people as I can involved. and. Um, so I, I, I believe that, um, you know, we really do fill a, a, a tasty void that needs to be filled. And I do want to tip my hat to you a little bit, too, because you are smart enough to understand the power of podcasting. And so when you came to New Hampshire, you immediately sent me a, a message saying, Clay, let's go get some lunch. Let's talk about fish and eat some food and stuff. So that was smart of you because uh, podcasting being that new outgrowth. And I hope to see... Virginia Eats and Drinks magazine and radio show available as a podcast. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to push you in that direction because people who listen to podcasts don't actually stream a lot of stuff elsewhere. It's just they're, they're podcasting people. So, uh, but there's a lot of roadblocks in the way we'll talk about off offline. Um, so, quick, uh, what's your favorite seafood dish? If you had to pick one seafood dish in Virginia Beach, not what kind, like not don't name a fish. Be very specific. You're a chef. Like, so if you say oysters, I want to hear what kind of oyster dish do you want to eat, for example. Well, that's almost like asking a father to pick their favorite child. I could do that. We, we all will. I think, I, think, I think every parent really probably could. Um, I will say something very simple. I'll just say oysters on the half shell. Because you know what? The most beautiful thing to me about oysters is just like wine grapes, they take, they take on their true sense of place more than almost any other food that I can think of. I mean, you can, you can grass feed a, a cow or something, but that oyster is picking up the salinity, is picking up the minerality. It tastes like the place that it came from. And, um, you know, and the first, the first dozen or two, I'm just going to eat without anything. The next couple of dozen, I might dip in some nice homemade cocktail sauce or something. And um, I, I'm going to say that. I'm a pretty simple guy, and, and that would be my baseline wherever I go is to at least try some raw oysters. The thing with raw oysters, if people haven't tried them, because we have audience all over the world, uh, if you haven't tried raw oysters, give it a shot. The funny thing about it is you never get full. Well, you can eat them for all day and never get full. It's a very strange food, and uh, maybe because of its texture, which, by the way, the texture is some reason some people won't even try them. They just, oh, it's going to be all runny and tastes like snot. But they're actually super delicious. I like to take my oysters, put them on the grill, just until they open up, and then eat them like that. Okay, so do you fish at all? 
Um, I haven't in years. I hate to say that. You know, um, I used to when I was younger, and it's just one of those things where with me, uh, my first career was banking and finance, and so between that career and then this, I just haven't had a chance. But um, but I have gone. I, I do I have gone crabbing pretty recently, and then also um, you know digging for clams and stuff. So we'll if you want to include that, but not not throwing a line in the water though. It's funny. A lot, a lot of crabbers would call themselves fishermen as well. So you can you can you can get away with that. By the way, just on a sidebar here, I did a lot of crabbing. I go to South Carolina for vacation every year, and we do a lot of catching blue crab out there. And I make really good crab cake. But I find that blue crab, so much effort to get the meat out of. It's just like I'm, I out west where I used to get Dungeness crabs, and you get these giant chunks of meat, and it's so easy. And then the blue crab is like. Six hours of work for three crab cakes. It's very tough. So um, we're going to have you come up this winter. Uh, as you know, I'm a fishing guide, and I'm going to bring you ice fishing, and we're going to catch a fish. We're going to fillet it, and since you're a chef, you tell me what ingredients to buy, and you're going to pan fry a fish for us. How's that sound? That sounds perfect. We can take lots of pictures and post those online, and and uh, down to every last delicious bite. You know, what we could do we could do a Virginia fusion dish. You could take a popular uh, recipe from Virginia that maybe you use for like um, a rockfish. Rockfish being a temperate bass. We have a freshwater version of that called a white perch. Same family of fish, and we could use that recipe from Virginia, ice fishing in New Hampshire, and then you could talk about that with your peoples. I'm already thinking that we'll maybe do the perch um, a Rockefeller style, but we will use um, peanuts instead of pine nuts, Virginia peanuts and the pesto for it, or, or that, that sauce. And then uh, instead of bacon, we'll use some good old salty Virginia country ham too, and do a preparation method, something like that. I'm, I'm all in on this. This sounds like way fun. Patrick, one more time, where can people find your magazine, radio show, you? What do you want, what do you want people to know? Last takeaway. Absolutely. Well, the, the, the hub is just kind of um, Virginia Eats and Drinks Magazine.com, and there's links to everything else on there, including different cooking classes, food writing classes I teach, um, the, the area about the radio show. Um, the magazine is out five times a, uh, a year electronically, once print, and then but we do do a weekly um, newsletter also. And so if you're not in Virginia, it's fine because there's all kinds of recipes and everything, too. Sooner or later, you probably come to Virginia or through Virginia, and just like our governor, uh, William Byrd, said in 1732, in the beginning, all of America was Virginia. So in my book, just like the bumper sticker says, you know, you're either Virginian by birth or by grace of God. So God bless you, all you beautiful listening Virginians out there. Perfect. Thank you, Patrick. And we'll put links to all that stuff at fishnurse.com and, of course, to all the social media sharing that you can eat. And I can't wait. I'm going to take you up on this fishing trip this winter. We're going to do this. So thank you so much. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Patrick. And incidentally, Patrick uh, and Doug are going to come back to New Hampshire this winter and do some ice fishing with us. It'll be really fun to get those flatlanders out in the ice and see what see what they can do. Uh Patrick also used to be a chef, and he wants to do a little Virginia Beach fusion cooking on the ice with me. So I can't wait to to get to get them out there and see what we can come up with. So totally fun, uh, and God, you know, it makes me really like doing this podcast. You know, the interaction with, with people who listen, uh, other business people, other podcasters, all this stuff really inspires me to keep going. Uh, speaking of inspiration, uh, you know, the fishing. Fall fishing is a funny time, and, and the fishing starts changing everywhere, all around the world. And so I, I put out a call this week, and I said, hey, give us a call at 607-378-FISH and give us your local fishing reports. And now I've done this before. I usually get one or two, and this week I got flooded. So the entire rest of the show is going to be local fishing reports. And I say local, I mean local could be uh, Chicago. It could be California, it could be New Jersey, it could be uh, Australia, it could be New Hampshire. It's wherever the callers are from. And we got a lot of calls this week. So uh, just enjoy it. And if you don't fish in those regions, it's kind of really fun to hear what people are up to in each area uh, and just kind of check in. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you want to call in uh, your report anytime, call 607-378-FISH. That's the Fish Nerds hotline. And we also welcome... Uh, fish nerds questions for Stump the Fish Nerds at that same 
phone number. So give us a call. Here are your local fishing reports. Yeah, hey, this is Steve with the North Country Angler in North Conway, New Hampshire. As everybody knows, the trout season comes to a close on October 15th. But that means that on all of the bass ponds and pickerel ponds and pike ponds, the fishing is just kicking in. So make sure you head to Lake Shakora and hit up those bass. Tight lines, everybody. If you need any more up-to-date information, you can check us out at www.northcountryangler.com or our Facebook page, North Country Angler. Hey, this is Nick from North Conway calling in my fall fishing report. Went fishing in western Maine uh, this past weekend, and there's a lot of good topwater action uh, with both bass and pickerel. Um, and the warm weather seems to be really uh, making the fishing good. Looking forward to an extended fall fishing season. Talk to you later. Hello, Fish Nerd Nation. This is David Perry calling from Marlboro, Massachusetts. The fall bite is on. The bass are feeding up at the mouths of coves. Soft sticks with a decent presentation should make it happen. Also remember that there's less than seven weeks left to fish the Wachusett. If you'd like some more information, visit us at wickedfisher.com. Now back to the fish nerds. Hello, fish nerds. Captain Sean here from MainTunaFishing.com. Uh, we're pulling the boat this week, uh, so our season is essentially over. But here in the southern Maine, in the Saco Bay area, there's still plenty of schooly stripers around. Um, anything up to about 20, 22 inches. Uh, they seem to be still hitting on the white sluggos, Ronzi's, um, radfish type plastics or, uh, chunk bait. Um, we're transitioning ourselves over to the hunting season. Duck hunting's been really good and a little bit of bow hunting for whitetail. Um, look to see you all on the water and in the woods. Hello, this is Gofish Dan, and I run the New England Fishing and Outdoor Expo. So, fall fishing after the hurricanes and the extremely warm weather. The water temps are still up, mid-60s, typically in most places I'm fishing in New England, which means the fish are still out 20, 30 feet of water. Been getting a lot on jigs, chatterbaits, creature baits, and drop shotting at those depths talking smallmouth bass, largemouth bass. Have a great fall, everybody. Hey, this is Jeff, your effing librarian in the Kansas City area. Hey, things are popping off around here. The catfish bite is on fire. Uh, my local city park lake, uh, you can't hardly throw a bait out there and let it sit on the bottom for five minutes before you've got a catfish on. And I'm hearing reports that uh, Smithville Lake large lake to the north of Kansas City area. Catfish bite is really, really good there. And uh, the other thing that's that's kind of popping off right now or starting to is the white bass and hybrids. As we're starting to get some cooler nights, water temperature's uh, dropping down, and the shad are starting to school up, and we're starting to see the hybrids and the whites patrolling the windswept points, and it's only going to get better probably through – so mid to late November is kind of the prime white bass wiper fishing time. Um, and so looking forward to getting out and chasing some of those. So that's, that's what's, that's the fishy goings on here in the Kansas City area. This is Hugo Medeiros, fishing correspondent for the Fish Nerds, as some of you guys might know with the fishing report. So I'm here in central Massachusetts, just a little bit west of the Worcester area. And uh, excited to report that the trout stalking has begun in Massachusetts. And I've uh, been out there uh, twice already. Uh, it's great to see. So get out there if you're in Massachusetts with your uh, power nuggets or little spinners or whatever you like to use. Uh, power nuggets is our best thing. Um, 
they are in. So looking forward to it. Um, also, this weekend, this is the season for Tatog. We call them in Massachusetts or the blackfish out in the ocean. So I'll be heading out, uh, weather permitting, in the ocean in my kayak this weekend. So get out there for tog, look for uh, rocks or structures such as wrecks or piers underwater in maybe 20 to 40 feet of water using uh, green crabs on, uh, I like to use jigs instead of the, uh, the three-way weight set up there or the high-low or whatever. I use a simple uh, tog jig with a green crab or an Asian crab. And uh, that's the plan. That's uh, what to shoot for here in Mass uh, this weekend, this weekend. Thank you, guys. Good luck. This is Michael Frank, owner and lead guide at Frank's Fly Arts Fly Fishing Guide Service in Columbia, South Carolina. The fall fishing in the rivers of Columbia has been excellent with good numbers of large holdover trout hitting nymphs and streamers and the occasional dry fly. Striped bass are bundling up, getting ready to migrate back down the Congaree to Lake Marion, where they'll they'll stay for the winter, uh, which lets us get a good last shot at these fish, uh, the ones that we can flip a small streamer to. And the smallmouth are also moving this time of year with some of the bi biggest broadbacks busting on top for the whole season. Come on down to sunny South Carolina and get in on our wintertime fishing, too. Uh, trout stocking begins here in mid-December, so the fishing will continue good all through the winter when we are having shirt sleeve weather. Go to www.franksflyarts.com or call me at 803-673-0238 to reserve a date. This is Justin Mullen from Minnesota. And right now in Minnesota, we're dealing with the turnover. If you don't know what the turnover is, um, it's when the water column all becomes the same temperature, known as lake turnover. How typically happens in the fall. If you'd like to know more about the lake turnover, be sure to check out the Live Well podcast because I'm a co-host of the show. Uh, thanks for listening to Fish Nerds. Have a good day. Howdy, folks. Howdy. This is Mike from the Average Joe Fishing Show. You don't have to be a pro to go. Checking in from Eastern Pennsylvania here. Calling in with a fishing report for the fish nerds community. This time of the year is what we call the fall feeding frenzy. Get out and fish. You can use just about anything to catch them around here. We use live bait mostly, feeding shiners most of the time, and you'll catch just about anything with them. Large mouth, small mouth, pickerel, crappies, you name it. It's the one that you want to use. One other thing that works well is the Joe Sly inline spinner, the black mat quarter ounce. Can't go wrong with that. I use it on an ultralight. works very well. You can catch just about any species of fish with them. I, I always use them when I am out and about. Bass, bass action has been good in the lakes and ponds in the area. Smallmouth action in the Delaware is also hot right now, and the muskie are starting to bite too. Trout in the Cricks is also doing good around here. You can just use about anything to catch them once again. I've seen a lot of fly fishermen out on the Cricks, so get out and fish, folks. Until next time, this is Mike from the Average Joe Fishing Show. Fish on! Clayton, this is Rich Collins uh, with a fishing report. I got so much to report, I don't know where to begin, so I'll just keep it simple. Fishing's been awesome. We got a little rain. Trout have been super active, stirred up some... Um, some action, a little bit of rain that we got, and a cool night. It's just been awesome. I mean, brown trout, rainbow trout, everywhere I've gone, there's been pretty good uh, action. That and a uh, trip on Silver Lake where we got bass uh, should, you know, that should do it. So fish on. The uh, season's about to end, but there's still some uh, good action around here in New Hampshire. All right, take care. Hi, this is Crappie Hippie out of eastern Kansas with a fishing report. The crappie bite is very good right now. They're still in the summer pattern at 15 to 20 feet right on the bottom. They're not suspended anymore. They're hugging the bottom. Hydrilla is going dormant in the pond, so get out the fly rod, get out the spinners. It's time to switch from the slow baits to the spinners and the action baits. And finally, the white bass are schooling on the surface for a lot of exciting action there. Tight lines and valentines, y'all. Crappie hippie here. Peace out. Uh, Instagram at crappie hippie. Uh, great, great podcast. Just started listening. Uh, good day, Clay. Here's my report. Good day, viewers. Shamos here from Shamos Lewis. Get into it. 
for my fall fishing report. As we here in the land down under call it autumn. Goes like this. Whether it was cold and as a mother-in-law's kiss, which made finding fish redfinch perch a little tricky at times. Usually, that's the worst impression ever. <laughs> a little tricky at times. Usually, the fish school up at this time of year, and the trick is to find them if you don't come often and not you clean up. I, with the daughter, Reese fished the Reese's and done all right. Albeit smaller fish in the shallows, a walk trolling with spinners. We caught steady numbers on most of the trips. Fair Duncan Reese outfishes most blokes with twice her age. She's a beauty, bonds a top notch, ridgy did ripper, little fisher with the warmer temps. The fish will pair up soon. Always a good time with the fish. Aussie Redfin, great tucker and wrap your lapping gear around. Bugger popping prawn in the Barbie. Chucker ready and wash it down with a coldie with your Sheila and your best met name Blue. Okay, Clay. Be red with a peg and nose to get Aussie nasal twang. Love your work, mate. Talk soon. Luke Chamos from Chamos Lures. Good day. All right. So, wow. Uh, <laughs> I hope you're still with me. There was a lot of fish reports in there, but uh, I-, I hope you enjoyed them all. I sure, I sure really like get a kick out of all those calls. Uh, but hey, you know that's it. You've listened to a whole bunch of fish turds when you should have been fishing. Uh, really special thanks to our FN librarian, Jeff Donaldson. Thanks to Fish Guy Josh. Thanks to Rich Collins. Thanks to uh, Virginia Eats and Drinks Magazine. Thanks, Big thanks to Nick Hudson Swagger from Diana's Bath Salts for mixing this podcast. And, of course, really huge, huge thanks to all you listeners right now. Uh, the podcast is growing like crazy because people like you are sharing the show. It really matters a lot to us. I, mean, I can't thank you enough for being part of this. So until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds, spawn early and often, avoid free lunches with strings attached, and swim against the current every 